new life in a new world are about to begin. Noah and his family were very, very thankful. Chapter 8, verse 20, there's an altar that is built, animals are sacrificed, worship is offered, and the Lord is well pleased. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The key phrase of this scripture portion that we're looking at this morning is there in the first three words, chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed and God blessed as we think about this new beginning of a new humanity it starts again as it did back in Eden with Adam and Eve when God blessed them and God said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth the same blessing that was there at the beginning the same blessing is being repeated all over again. This is good news after the judgment. Blessing after judgment. Blessing after cursing. If you look back to chapter 8 verse 21. Wonderful news. Terrible universal judgment is over. Peter says that the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But God saved Noah and his household. And now they come out of the ark onto dry land and it's the start of a new life in a new world. And it's good to know that the Lord's blessing was upon them. Now as we consider this passage, we can see that their new life in the new world is blessed in several ways. And they're listed on your outline sheet. Firstly, we see God's merciful promise to the earth secondly we see God's gracious blessing upon mankind and thirdly we see God's rainbow covenant with us God's threefold blessing upon humanity which continues for us today firstly God's merciful promise to the earth in chapter 8 verse 20 in coming out of the ark, the first thing that Noah did was build an altar and offer burnt offerings. It was an act of sacrifice. It expressed worship to God as well as penitence. Burnt offerings were an offering of penitence. Offerings that recognized sin and the need for a substitute to deal with the penalty of sin. And here's Noah and his family. Though they escaped the judgment of the flood, they were very aware of their own sinfulness they're very aware that they really did deserve to be drowned along with everyone else but in gratitude for the mercy of God towards them and in recognition of their sin and their need for a substitute they offered burnt offerings unto the Lord and this act of worship and this act of penitence elicited from God the response that we read in verse 21 says the Lord smelled a sweet savor and that's a human way of saying that God was pleased with their offering. God was pleased with their hearts and therefore God made a promise to the earth. There are three parts to it. First of all, no additional curse. Chapter 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. If you think back to Genesis 3, God had cursed the ground on account of Adam's sin. 
But God's promise recorded here didn't invalidate that curse because that curse won't be totally removed until Revelation 22 verse 3 in the new heavens and the new earth where there, be, there is no more curse. But in his mercy, God decided not to add to man's affliction. I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Even though man is still depraved, even, the world, even though the world is going to be repopulated with sinful people, even though it's going to just become all wicked all over again, God says, I will never do this again. I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, which is a merciful promise that we still enjoy today. Second promise is in the second half of verse 21. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. In other words, no more universal flood. God promised that there would be no more universal floods. There will be a future global judgment, but it won't be a judgment of water. It'll be a judgment of fire. Second Peter tells us, and that'll happen again when the Lord makes the creation new again, the new heavens and the new earth will happen at the end of the millennium. In spite of the fact that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, in spite of the fact that the earth is once more again ripe for judgment even today, the guarantee of verse 21 is a comfort to us, it gives us hope, it gives us courage. In the midst of uncertain days and an unknown future, God gives this merciful promise, verse 22, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, there's going to be, thirdly, no interruption to the cycle of nature. Each time we go to bed at night or turn the calendar over on a new month, we should be reminded that God is concerned about planet Earth and its inhabitants. And with the invention of the electric light and modern means of transportation and communication, we really have probably moved away from living by the cycles of nature that were established by God. We don't any longer have to go to bed at sundown. We don't have to get up at sunrise. If we don't like the wet, what the weather is where we are, we can just get in the car, we can drive somewhere else where it's better. But if God were to dim the sun or rearrange the season or tilt the earth just even slightly to a different angle, our lives would be in jeopardy. We are very prone to take for granted sunrise and sunset, the phases of the moon, changing of the seasons. But all of these functions are but evidences that God is still very much on the throne and God keeps his promises in spite of the fact that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood didn't change that. Noah and his wife and the three sons and the sons' wives coming out of the ark were sinners. And his sons and their wives were going to reproduce more sinners. 
And we know that for a fact because not long after this, as we get to chapter 11, the world has become so sinful again that God has to scatter the people over the whole globe, confound their languages as a judgment upon them. So man is sinful. But God promises to be merciful. God is going to be merciful and not destroy the earth in judgment like he did in the flood as long as the earth remains. Someday we read in scripture that heaven and earth will pass away. Someday judgment will come. And in fact the date of that judgment is already fixed. Acts chapter 17 says that the Lord has fixed the day when he will judge the world. And that's why he calls on everyone now to repent. The day of judgment is fixed. Just as the day of the flood was fixed. God said, man, you've got 120 years. And so too the day of the Lord Jesus Christ's return and ultimately the destruction of the heavens and the earth. That day is fixed. And so today, now is the time to repent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord for he will have mercy upon him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In his mercy God promises to save all that will come to him and God keeps his promises. Secondly, as we come, in, as we come into chapter 9, <clears throat> We see God's gracious blessing upon mankind. Verses 1 to 7, which still continues today. And in this portion, we see three aspects of God's gracious blessing. <clears throat> Let's look at the first one, the blessing of marriage and children. Verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that blessing is repeated in similar words in verse 7. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And these two verses are merely a repeat of the command that God originally gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Before there was any sin, God said to them, God blessed them, it says, God blessed them. And said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And that exact same thing is being repeated here. Be fruitful and multiply. It's an expression of procreation. The wonderful blessing of procreation that was given to the original sinless couple in the paradise of Eden is here again repeated. God blessed Noah. And his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. And quite frankly, one of the biggest blessings of life is the blessing that God gives between a husband and a wife and the children that they procreate. The sweetest and most wonderful relationships in life are those within a marriage and family between a husband and a wife and their children. Back in Genesis 2.24, God defined their marriage in very, very simple terms. Therefore let a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Two people, a man and a woman, 
come together from their respective families, establishing a new union and produce a child, which is the one flesh product of the two. Now, if you think about it, God could have said to Noah, Noah, you know, like in light of everything that's resulted from Adam and Eve's sin, you know, the sin that they brought into the world, the sin that they passed on to their children, including you and your children, I have decided, particularly your sons and their wives, will have no more babies. I don't really want to deal with this sin issue anymore. I'm just going to let you live your life and then eventually die. And then I will start all over again. I'm going to genetically modify you so you don't produce any more sinners. And when you're gone, then I will create again a sinless society. Start all over again. No more babies for you. No more sinners. After you die, that'll be it. Now, of course, God didn't do that. He gave to those sinners the blessing of marriage and the blessing of children and the blessing of grandchildren. God knew that Adam's family would produce billions of sinners, billions of sinners living their sinful lives, doing sinful things, the horrors of which would be mitigated by the blessing of marital love. And the blessing of family. I think any people on the face of the earth would confess that in all the trials of life and all the difficulties of life and all the effects of sin that come to bear upon life, even the unregenerate world would confess that the best thing in life is the love of family, love of a husband and a wife and children. That's a blessing unlike any other earthly blessing. The highest human joy is in marriage and children, son or a daughter, grandson, granddaughter, extended family. Now, they don't always remain that way for many people. And yet, even for them, the initial relationship and the initial joy of marriage and children, again, don't have any human equal. No one knows love like the true love of a husband and wife. And no one knows love that can match the unique love that a parent has for a child. So the first blessing of life in this new world, which continues today, is marriage and children. And aren't you glad that in a sinful world, which is wrecked by so many things, we still have that. We still have this. How good is God to mitigate the effects of sin in society by giving us intimate, fulfilling, joyous relationships in marriage and in children. In verses 2 to 4, God then provides the blessing of food and health. Verses 2 and 3 talk about food. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you 
all things. Verse 2 reminds us of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over, every, over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 28, Genesis 1.28 repeats the very same thing. Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. This is a... This is the original authority that was given to man. Man was created to rule over creation, to exercise dominion over everything on the earth. And now in this new world, the rulership of man is again repeated as a blessing to be enjoyed. Although here after the flood, it does take on a slightly different sense. There's a different element which is here included. Verse 2 says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon all of the animals. That's, that was something different from the original. Before the fall, there was a harmony between man and the animals. All the animals came up to Adam as friendly as you like and he named them all. But now after the fall, There was, there was, there's, what's the word? Hostility, that's the word. Hostility between the man and the animal kingdom. And that hostility is here indicated as the words fear and dread. Now, on the one hand, that's an evidence of the fall. That's an evidence of the curse. But on the other hand, there, it is also a blessing. It is a blessing that, for the most part, animals who might harm us are generally afraid of us. That is generally true in the animal world. God has wired the animal side to be essentially afraid of man. But at the end of verse 2, it says, Into your hands they are delivered. Into your hands they are delivered. The entire animal kingdom is delivered into your hands. In other words, the entire animal kingdom is for the use of man. And it's important that we understand this. That implies eating. Verse 2 implies the eating of all the beasts of the earth, the fowl of the air, all creatures that move upon the earth, and all the fishes in the sea. Verse 2 makes that, it implies that, but verse 3 makes it explicit. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Now, you don't have to eat at all. I think for most of us here, there are a lot of things that, uh, given the choice, we would prefer not to eat. Some people may and are free to do so, um, but we prefer not to, and we don't have to. But they are all, they are all delivered into man's hands for that purpose. Adam was a gardener. Abel was a farmer. So, so Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd, and now no only sons are hunters. And they were blessed with a wide variety of food, like everything. Now, if you prefer to go vegetarian, that's perfectly fine. Verse 3 says, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So there you go. You can have your vegetables. 
Now, originally, in the original creation, man could only eat plants. Why? Because death hadn't come into the world. There was no death. Every animal and every man was vegetarian. But after the fall, it appears that men then began to eat meat. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 20, tells us how they, as civilization progressed, they began to develop livestock. And I think that certainly implies the eating of animals. But here is God's official authority to do so. Those that came out of the ark and entered into the new world. Now, they might have had the question, you know, okay, we're entering this new world. Does God want us to go back to things as they were in the beginning when everyone was vegetarians? Is that what God would require of us now? The answer is no. God says, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. By the way, Mark chapter 7, Jesus taught that it's possible and permissible to eat all foods. The apostle Peter affirmed this truth in Acts chapter 10, as did Paul in Colossians 2 verse 16, and 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. However, we know for a fact that the early church did struggle with this issue. They had disagreements over diets. And yet Paul, standing back, looked at the whole issue and he said, basically, his counsel was receive one another, love one another, be sensitive to one another, don't do anything to make anyone else stumble, seek for opportunity to build each other up in the, in the faith. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And yet God did bless Noah and his descendants, that is us, with an abundance of options. Along with a necessary pro prohibition in verse 4 that relates to our health. <clears throat> the new world which Noah entered was still a fallen world. And built into the fallen world was the law of entropy. That is the disintegration of things. And since the fall, there has been certain mutations, mutations of, life, of forms of life that for us become very dangerous, dangerous parasites, dangerous viruses, dangerous bacteria. And so the Lord gives this prohibition. But the prohibition is also a blessing because it's there for our protection. Verse 4, but the flesh... With the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. The picture here is of raw meat, uncooked meat. Don't eat the still bleeding, uncooked flesh of a butchered animal. As I just mentioned, there are parasites, bacteria, microorganisms, viruses that carry disease in a fallen world. And many animals carry these harmful things. They carry through the body, through their blood. And the health ramifications from blood are really serious. They do go from minor issues like a really, really bad upset stomach to some major, major problems that can and are deadly. Blood can transmit AIDS and meningitis and pneumonia and endocarditis and septicemia, septicemia Ebola, encephalitis, hepatitis, and the list goes on. You don't want any of that. God knows all that. And so when Noah stepped out of the ark, if he's going to survive in this new world and remain healthy, then he needed to be prohibited from doing something 
which would be prohibitive to his health. And that's why God gave us fire and electricity so we cook our food. But God stated concisely to Noah what was then elaborated through Moses. Life is in the blood. Life must be respected. Even if you're butchering an animal for a feast, the blood must be respected. Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 15. Furthermore, the blood of animals would play a very, very important part of the Mosaic sacrifices that was an additional reason to obey God's command. But from instructing Noah about the shedding of animal blood, the Lord then proceeds to discuss the even more important topic of shedding human blood. What is it that poses the greatest threat to the life of man? Well, bacteria does pose a threat, viruses and parasites and microorganisms. But the greatest threat to man comes from man. Some animals are a threat to man, but the greatest threat to man is himself. The imagination of man's heart is only evil from his youth. And so far in the history of the world, mankind did not have a very good track record when it came to caring for one another. Cain killed his brother Abel. Lamech killed a young man and bragged about it. And the whole earth in Noah's day was so corrupt, it was filled with violence. God had put the fear of human beings into animals, but now he had to put the fear of God into human beings, lest they destroy one another. So God ordained human government as an earthly authority for the exercise of justice. Government and justice. Verses 5 and 6 are controversial verses with some people, but they're not controversial in the Bible. Verse 5, surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require, and the hand of every man. The hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Those who kill their fellow human beings will have to answer to God for their deeds, because men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. To attack a human being is to attack the God who created it. And the Lord will have the offender brought to justice. Verse 6. If you shed man's blood, that means you murder somebody. Therefore, by man, at the hands of man, that person's blood must be shed as well. This is not personal vengeance. This is simply now the responsibility of humanity. Placed into the hands of government. All through scripture, there is a forbidding of personal vengeance. But justice here is, is prescribed under God's law for man's protection. I think we all should be great, grateful that every murderer doesn't get a second chance. It makes a very safe, makes for a much safer society. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus confirms the same truth in one very, very important statement. Matthew 26, 52. The context there is Peter tries to chop off the head of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Jesus says to Peter, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. 
What was Jesus saying? If you take a man's life, then you give your life. You can't use a sword to kill someone with impunity. You take a life, you forfeit your life. All those who kill will themselves die. Thus Jesus upheld the law of capital punishment. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. Speaking in Acts chapter 25 verse 11. In a Roman court under Festus at the city of Caesarea, he said, if I, if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Paul understood that the law of capital punishment was God's law. He said, if I've done anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. I'm willing to accept my just execution. All of life is a gift from God. And to unjustly take it away is to take the place of God. The Lord gives life and God alone has the right to authorise the taking of it. But how did God arrange for to punish murderers and see justice done and the law upheld? He established human government on the earth and in so doing shared with mankind the awesome responsibility of enacting on God's behalf justice ministers of God government is and this is the important mandate of Genesis 9 verse 6 human government and the justice of capital punishment go together as Paul explained in Romans 13 verses 1 to 7 he says human government has a responsibility to protect and reward the right and to punish the wrong Government authorities in the book of Romans chapter 13 have been given a sword and the right to exercise it. They have a responsibility to exercise it. What's a sword for? It's not to slap people. It's not to scratch people. It's to execute people. It's a deadly weapon. It isn't a whip. It's not sticks, not stocks. It's an instrument, an implement of death. Government was established by God because, Genesis 8.21, the human heart is evil. And the fear of punishment can help restrain would-be lawbreakers. The law can restrain, but it can't regenerate. Only the grace of God can change a human heart. But if individuals... And families were allowed to deal with offenders in their own way, then society would descend to a state of chaos. Human government certainly has its weaknesses and its limitations, but human government is better than anarchy when everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Opponents of capital punishment say, does capital punishment really de de deter crime? They say psychological studies and criminal studies say that it is not a deterrent. That's that is not true. Certainly it is a deterrent because dead people can't kill anyone else. That's a serious deterrent. If you're dead, you cannot kill anyone. But does any law deter every crime, including parking laws and speeding laws? Perhaps not as much as we desire. But the punishment of offenders does help society to honour law and justice. The law helps to protect and compensate innocent people who are victims of lawless behaviour. 
Well, so far we've seen the blessed life in the new world. It includes God's merciful promise to the earth, God's gracious blessing upon mankind, which includes marriage and children, food and health, governments that administer justice. Finally, there is a third blessing here. God's rainbow covenant with us, verses 8 through 17, contain a very, very important message from God. In fact, it includes three speeches. Each speech is introduced by the phrase, and God spake or and God said. First one begins at verse 8. Second one commences at verse 12. The third one is a summary, brief speech in verse 17. Three speeches from God to Noah and his family. This section of scripture here is what the theologians call the Noahic covenant. God spoke especially to, especially to Noah and his sons. This covenant includes all of Noah's descendants, verse 9, for perpetual generations, verse 12. In other words, this covenant made with Noah is for all humanity. But it doesn't even stop there. It also includes every living creature, verses 10 and 12, and every living creature of all flesh, verse 15. In other words, it's not just human beings. It's the bird, the beast, the wild animal, animals, which are all encompassed and protected by this wonderful covenant. It is first and foremost a covenant with all creation. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. The Hebrew word is berith. It means a promise. In this instance, a promise made by God to man. And this is very, very important because it establishes that God is a covenant maker. And he personally commits himself to be faithful to his promises that he makes to men. He is a promiser who makes covenants. And from this point on, Genesis 9 onwards, throughout the entire Bible, God is known as a covenant-making God who is faithful to keep his covenants. This is the first covenant that God makes. The promise is a very simple one. I'll never again do what I just did. I'll never again drown the world in a universal flood. I'll never again destroy the entire planet like this. Now, upon reading this passage, it's quite repetitious. It seems quite wordy. But it is of such a nature that it needs to be carefully worded and reiterated clearly. It needs to be repeat, it needs to be summarized. It's almost like a legal document. Demands thoroughness. And please don't underestimate the value of the repetition here. The word covenant bereath is not surprisingly used seven times. Seven times. This this is a real covenant, a, a complete covenant, a perfect covenant mentioned seven times. The repetition is powerful. It strengthens the covenant. Verse 9 says, I establish, that's present. Verse 11, I will establish. That's imminent future. It means immediately I'll establish this. Then verse 17, I have established. Present perfect. God says, I will do it. I do it immediately. I have done it. Very careful expression of language here. God initiates it. God enacts it. God completes the covenant. And the token of the covenant is also stated repeatedly. The sign of the covenant is referred to in verse 12. It's set in verse 13. It's guaranteed the future, verses 14 and 15. God will notice it, verse 16. Verse 17 is a repeated summary. 
So the repetition is part of the comprehensive character of this covenant. Why this covenant? Well, very simply for the blessing of man. A blessing for man from the mercy of God. The goodness of life for man upon the earth from the goodness of God. The enjoyment of man from the grace of God. Now, to start with, this was very important news for Noah. Apparently, it hadn't rained before the flood. And at the flood, it rained for the very, very first time. But now, in the new world, rain will be a common thing. In the new world, it's going to rain regularly all over the planet. Water is crit critical to man's life. It's very important to us. And so rain is going to fall from God as a blessing on the just and the unjust, making things grow, necessary for life, producing beauty and food in the earth. Rain is going to be common. But Noah didn't know that yet. If we were to ask Noah, Noah, what do you think of rain? He might say, well, well I only saw it once and I didn't like it. <laughs> rain is bad. The, the whole world perished because of rain. Rain is bad. We do not need any more rain. Now, that may have been a personal testimony about how he felt about rain. And the first drop that fell on his head again, you might see him running for the ark again. That's the only rain that he knew. God says, Noah, don't worry. It's a paraphrase here. It will rain. And rain will be a normal part of life, but it will never, it will never be a worldwide devastation like that first rain. And so this was not just a, a covenant with humanity. This is also just good news for Noah and his family and for us. God will never do it again. As long as the earth remains, I will not send such a flood. There'll be local floods. There'll be storms. There'll be volcanic eruptions. There'll be all kinds of bits and pieces of what was the flood of Noah's day, the cataclysm that engulfed the earth. There'll be those kinds of things in local places, different times around the world. But never again will a worldwide disaster occur again. I won't do that again. Not that you don't deserve it. Man's heart continues to be evil. It's not that we don't deserve it. But God says, I just won't do it. That's my promise. You know, and all his descendants, as his promise to us, with all of creation. But then we also see it, it's a covenant with a sign. To help people remember his covenants, God would give them a visible, visible token, a visible sign. The word, the Hebrew word for token here. 77 times in the New Testament, 14 times it's translated token, and about 65 times it's translated by the word sign. This covenant that God made with Abraham, it was sealed with the sign, token, the sign of male circumcision. The Mosaic covenant at Sinai was sealed with the sign of the weekly sabbath god's covenant with noah and the whole of creation was sealed by the token the sign of the rainbow 
And whenever people saw the rainbow, they would remember God's promise that no future storm would ever become a worldwide flood to destroy all of humanity. Now let's just think for a moment as we conclude about a rainbow. The word, Hebrew word for bow here is not the word rainbow. It's kashith in Hebrew. It's the same word for battle bow, battle bow a weapon of destruction and death. In ancient Near Eastern literature, their deities were often depicted as bow-wielding, symbol of destruction. And the Old Testament pictures God sometimes like that. Exodus 15 verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. Habakkuk 3.9, His bow is made quite naked, that is laid bare. People can see it. Zechariah 9 verse 14, his arrow shall go forth as lightning. God is sometimes depicted as a warrior with a bow. And in the flood, God the warrior shot his lightning arrows. They pierced the sky and the rains came thundering down and his arrows pierced the earth and the earth broke open and the fountains of the great deep came up and there were arrows of lightning and destruction everywhere. God bent his bow in wrath. But from now on, God has, God has hung up his bow. He's hung up his bow in the sky where everyone can see it. And so next time you see a rainbow, that's God's bow. It's not aimed downwards, read the fire. He hung it up because this is not the time of judgment. This is a time of grace and mercy and salvation and blessing every sinner on the planet sees the bow he sees the sign of God's blessing we live in a time of grace verse 14 it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living thing every creature of all flesh nor the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. God says, when you see the bow, you will see it and you will remember. Not only that, he says, I will see it and I will remember. You say, does God need visual reminders? The answer is no, but this is his way of telling us that he doesn't forget. God never forgets his promises. God remembers his covenant. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. Now, God could certainly turn the bow of his vengeance upon us and his judgment upon us once more because we have broken God's law. We deserve judgment. But he has turned the bow towards heaven and taken the punishment himself. And Jesus died on the cross. It was the just one suffering in the place of the unjust, bearing the judgment, bearing the sufferings that rightly belongs to us. Rainbows are universal. We see them all over the world. And that's appropriate because after all, God so loves the world. Christ died for the sins of the world. And the multifaceted grace of God, the multicoloured grace of God, his abundant grace is sufficient for the whole world. And it needs to be announced to the whole world. 
in the future there will be a final wrath to come in which the universe will be destroyed by fire and all sinners will perish. That is all who don't know Christ. But for now, today is the day of salvation. The bow of God, the bow of a warrior hangs in all of its beauty over the earth against the clouds of judgment as the beauty of grace touches heaven in its arc and touches the earth with its ends, telling all humanity that God is a, a merciful and gracious God to sinners like us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your gracious dealings with mankind. Lord, it's a sad thing that uh, in Noah's day there are only eight people who uh, responded to the message of salvation. And uh, Lord, we see that, uh, Lord, in our own day and age, um, very few people, very few people um, desire to be, to be saved from the wrath to come. That's probably because they don't, uh, they don't really know, they don't really understand what that involves. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you might help us to uh, be as Noah was, that is, a faithful preachers of righteousness, uh, telling people about the need uh, to come to Christ. Thank you that your grace and patience and long-suffering uh, has continued and, uh, Lord, is uh, very evident uh, uh, very often. Uh, very often we see the rainbow, a uh, perpetual reminder that today is the day of salvation. God is acting in mercy uh, towards sinners, sinners who will uh, turn to him. And uh, we pray that they would. We pray that you might help us to be uh, your faithful ambassadors. We ask this in Jesus' name.